Welcome to Under the Lens. Come and enjoy an extraordinary, raw, and unfiltered podcast that delivers debate, discussions, and interviews about film, pop culture, and everything in between. Here is your host, film critic and journalist, Byron Lafayette. Greetings all and welcome to Under the Lens with Byron Lafayette. I am, of course, your host, Byron Lafayette. And today we're going to have a really uh, fun and interesting conversation with a uh, filmmaker about his latest short film that has uh, come out and been making the uh, festival circuits. Uh, it's a film titled August, and uh, I'm here with the uh, with the director, uh, Eli McGowan. Uh, welcome, Eli, to the program. Thanks for having me, Byron. Yeah. So I'm really uh, excited to uh, to chat with you about uh, about your film because you know uh, you know as as you know you sent me the uh, the link so I've seen it and uh, you know just like you know when I was watching it I was just very uh, very impressed with all the qualities and the the filmmaking and and you know the the script and the story and everything and so I'd I definitely like to like to get into just you know all the nuances that went into to making it and uh, you know just like some of the background and uh, and everything but before we jump into to the actual uh, actual film itself uh, you know what uh what got you interested in like being a filmmaker being a director a cinematographer sure no there was uh the completely unoriginal moment but there was a moment in my life uh for sure and that was um i was like five or six years old living on a military base in alabama and uh my dad borrowed from another soldier the vhs special editions of star wars and the funny part about vhs is of course you know there's no special features you start the movie you you play it through but those special editions a lot of people forget they had like a 20 minute featurette before the movie would play and it was a behind the scenes featurette um i remember that so for for 20 minutes before you could watch the movie you were forced to watch you know them talking about shooting in tunisia talking about applying vaseline to the 35 millimeter film to create the special effect of the the land speeder um <clears throat> all sorts of, you know, little, little things, uh, little tidbits of, of movie magic. And that definitely sunk its claws into me, started making short films with my eventually seven younger siblings, uh, on our camcorder shooting stills, 35 millimeter stills with my family's SLR. Um, and I always wanted to do that, got severely sidetracked, ended up after undergrad going to law school for a year. Um, I had always liked stuff related to that. And, and my mom and dad were hoping I would, you know, make some money, do, do something more respectable than become a Hollywood, uh, you know, clown. So uh, <clears throat> that lasted for one year. My daughter was born right at the end of my first year of law school. And that made me realize that it's actually possible I, I might have more time in this industry to spend with her and my family than I would um, in law. And right at that same time, uh, my best friend died uh, in a hiking accident, uh, actually right in front of me. And that wow. really changed a lot of things about how I approach lifespan and you know the meaning of life and uh, what I wanted to do with my life. But the main thing I took away from both of those events is it would be really sad if you know, even if I had success in law, if I, if I looked back and I always wondered what would have happened if I had you know just given film a shot um, and I decided fail or not, at least I'll, I'll have certainty. At least I'll be able to, to live with myself if I try and see where I end up. Um, and so it's been a long and weird, tough journey and a lot of low budget features, a lot of faith based features, a lot of you know, just complete shit show features um, and some corporate work as well. I worked adjacent to politics because that's what my undergrad degree was in in Washington, D.C. for several years. Um, so all sorts of slimy characters. I did some some work I wasn't super proud of in that time. But uh, uh, all along, um, the goal was to work in film. And uh, my wife and I came down to Georgia, got our MFAs the last couple of years. And this film was the, the capstone to that. It's also a proof of concept for a feature film 
Um, and meanwhile, I'm occupied with some other documentary projects. And, and my day job is uh, managing a Griffin Electric rental house. Um, so we service a lot of TV shows and features here. But uh, it's it's been a wild, wild journey. That's very cool, you know, and it, it, it is very true, you know, what what you said, you know, that it's like it's, you know, b- better to have tried and failed at something, you know, than to have never tried at all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I feel much more at peace now, I think. I hope. I don't know. There's other days where you're like, well, health insurance is nice. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, if I was a lawyer, at least if I'm depressed, I can, you know, buy the right things or, or see uh, whoever I need to see. But, uh, you know, it, it depends on the day of the week. Today's a good day. <laughs> oh, no, de- you know, definitely. Because, uh, yeah, it can... You know, I, I imagine, you know, that there's there's some days that are, that are better than than others in the career. You know, it's like I, you know, on, on my side, I, you know, I, I'm working towards being, you know, a writer, you know, and stuff. And I want to, you know, eventually publish like novels and everything. And, uh, you know, when you're when you're, you know, sending stuff in, you know, submitting, you know, either, you know, like, you know, novellas, poetry books or whatever. It's like you're always getting rejected. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. you know, you're trying to figure out, OK, yeah, maybe, maybe the next one will, will be it, you know. But no, uh, I feel bad for you guys. My wife is a writer. Her, her MFA was was writing. And mm. it's so funny as I'm applying to festivals and stuff like that. She's like, you hear back. Uh-huh. Like you, you, they have to notify you. They, you get accepted. <laughs> you only have to pay like you know five dollars or 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 there's a cash prize. You like it's so much worse for writers, and it seems like it's only getting worse with mm-hmm. the development of of technology and AI and everything. But, oh, uh, it's it's uh, horrible. That's yeah. what I, I I had a friend who posted online about the. Uh, how, you know, this one, uh, um, I think it was uh, Clark's, I think, you know, a very famous science fiction magazine. And, um, you know, and they were like, oh, we're pausing all submissions while we figure out like how to track like AI yeah. submissions. And, you know, and I told my friend, I was like, oh, man, I was like, you know, it's already hard enough to get published that now we're literally competing with like robots now. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's so fun. She's like, yeah, you can pay like, $50 and submit to the New Yorker. And by the way, they haven't selected someone who's done a submission who didn't have an agent in 50 years or whatever, but, but you can pay them $50 and you know, it's crazy because uh, there's a lot of festivals out there and it's still competitive and it's a golden age for that. It might not last forever, but I'm glad that um, I'm around during this time and people can still kind of get out there. I think we're equally scared about ai and what the future Mm -hmm. has but uh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's very it's very true you know and uh you know i i agree with you i think that you know right now you know festival wise it is a it's really really good for filmmakers there's so many opportunities to be able to get your uh you know your work your work out there for audiences and and judges to see yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would imagine too, you know, before we, we get to the, uh, to, to your actual film, you know, uh, what is your, you know, like your, your opinion? Cause obviously, you know, um, you know, uh, I think you're, you're pretty much, you're, you're close in age to me. I'm 35. Um, oh, nice. uh, and, um, you know, and it's so, it's, the process of, uh, of filming is so, you know, different, obviously when, when we were growing up to, to people now, and, uh, you know, uh, what do you think about the whole process of how you have had to have a dedicated type of camera, you know, when we were when we were younger? And it's like now, you know, you have so much, you know, power within just like, you know, your cell phone to be able to obviously not make stuff maybe quite, you know, to the level with other stuff. But you can actually, you know, film, you know, a reasonably decent looking, you know, sure. uh, film on your phone. Like, what do you think about all that? Yeah, and I, I am a, a tiny bit younger. I'm still in that denial age. I'm I'm 29 and I'm okay. 30 this June, so I I can pretend that I'm not middle aged for like a couple you know more months or whatever. Um, but uh, no, you're totally right. And so technology it it uh it it develops in good ways and bad ways. Obviously, AI is really scary because it has the potential to shut artists out of a living and further remove the means of um, making a living for themselves, the means of capital away from the artist's hands and, and cell phones and stuff like that were the opposite. What we saw in the switch to digital and DSLRs and mirrorless and iPhones and everything that's come out of that YouTube 
is democratization. It's allowed people with true talent to stand out. And that's really good and really scary because there's a lot of people, as you obviously know, as a critic, there's a lot of people who are handed um, immense money and power and uh, given opportunities that many of them deserve it. And some of them really don't deserve it yet. They're handed that because they're part of a system that originated out of the blue a hundred years ago and is still trying to figure out its identity. Um, even TikTok and stuff like VR and XR, it, it kind of scares me because it's a little bit after my time and people with talent stand out, but you have to work hard and show that talent to stand out. So it's, it's, you know, it's as tough as it's ever been. But the good part is, I think more people who have that talent are really being rewarded at every level. Um, because you're right, anyone can go out there with an iPhone and shoot something and put it on the internet and, and get, you know, millions of people to see it, which is just something no one before maybe the 80s or 90s could have even imagined. Um, so, yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, and, you know, as you were saying too, you know, I think, you know, talent obviously, you know, rises to the top, you know, cause you know, you look at a, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago, you know, Zack Snyder filmed like a, you know, like a short film all on like an iPhone, you know, and it looked amazing, of course, you know, and stuff. And it's like, you know, obviously anybody who picks up an iPhone, it's not going to look quite like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And people overrate the whole camera thing like i remember being a gearhead when i was in high school and middle school and like you know refreshing the the page of the canon website or the the even the panavision website like just staring at this hundred thousand dollar camera like oh if i only had this i would be george lucas and not realizing like i didn't know anything about anything back then you know there's so much that goes into the performance the storytelling the stuff like color and, and left to right motion and storytelling and all of this you know theory and stuff and um the gear is so far down on the list and and of course um i'm in a different spot in my career now so now i, I sound like the people who said that back then and i was like yeah but you have a nice camera <laughs> um but uh no it's it's become so much more democratized it's great and the people with the knack for storytelling are really starting to stand out there's some incredible you know 15 16 17 year old filmmakers putting their stuff on tiktok they have to like crop it down and like tell you to rotate your phone or whatever but then millions of people are seeing it and they're gathering uh, a following and some of them are even funding their films through tiktok um so it's it's been really cool to see um what people are taking advantage of that's very true you know and uh you, know, you mentioned uh you know obviously like you know knack for storytelling and stuff and that kind of leads us right into you know the uh, the short film that you've just made august uh you know, um, you know, where did the uh, where did the the idea for this film come from? Like, how did it how did it uh, originally come about for you to decide to make it? Yeah, there's a lot of layers um, to this story, and it was written. It's based on a short story written by my wife. She never got the short story published. You know, that's the the fate of of writers. I think it's an incredible story. I think the story is better than the movie, and uh, it was nominated by. Uh, our school for the AWP awards and all sorts of stuff, but it, it's never been published anywhere. No one, you know, who knows if anyone ever read it outside of our circle of friends. Um, but she was inspired to write a story uh, about a young boy who is shocked by the appearance of German POWs in his rural Georgia farming community. And that's uh, based on a, a, the real fact that, German POWs found their way to camps all across America, and, and many of them were used in uh, agricultural work. And her family has a connection to that, because in the 1970s, her dad was playing on their family farm that they've owned for 200 years there in Emanuel County, Georgia. He was digging by a railroad track, and he just pulls out a German penny piece of finnig, and it has a swastika emblazoned on the back. And wow. he knew that, you know, there was either workers there or a cattle car. I mean, not a cattle. They moved them in nice car, Pullman cars, um, treated them very well overall. But uh, he knew at some point a German prisoner had lost that coin right there on his family farm. And so uh, she decided to write a story drawing on that, but also drawing on 
um, the rise of nationalism and xenophobia that we see in, in our society today and kind of ask the question of, of what would that boy who has a very immature, very black and white way of viewing the world, what would he do if he was confronted um, with those POWs and confronted with his sister, the school teacher uh, of the town, being in love with him, having a relationship with one of them um, and stumbling across that. Um, so there was there was that that we were drawing on uh, and we were also drawing on other family stories that come into some of the other plot points. Uh, but yeah, it was, I thought, extremely original and I had to pick a story to, to do for our next film, our, our previous film, which we haven't completed. We moved ahead with August after we shot our, our previous one. Puzzle. It was my thesis. I had to graduate. And we had to move ahead. We could only fund one movie at a time. Um, our previous one had been the, about the death of our friend who uh, had died in that hiking accident. It was about grief and it was about um, a park ranger up in the mountains. And, and that was super fun. And I, I really liked it at the time. I shouldn't have even done that or should have done that as my thesis was two films during a you know three year degree is, is kind of crazy mm-hmm. and uh i i was at a loss for what i was going to do next so i was really happy that she was like well no one's publishing this short story i'm not <laughs> sure if ever, anyone's ever going to see it do you want to take a hack at it and i was like yeah yeah please so we co-wrote the screenplay and we added um a new beginning and ending that added a little bit of a little bit of hollywood to it i think and uh now it's off to festivals. We've heard back from one. We're going to hear back from another tomorrow and another the day after that. And then we have about 30 more we're going to hear back over the course of the year. Uh, but that's our first round. Uh, none of those are those household name festivals in general. You shouldn't apply to any of those until you, you get some laurels at some uh, other ones so that the big guys watch your film so uh-huh. that's that's the goal we'll see how it goes on this first round if it goes well then you know we can push it up to the big guys but we're also moving ahead with the story for our next film which we'll shoot in the fall or winter and it's another dark southern uh story even shorter and punchier hopefully but yeah very cool yeah because uh, i i definitely i i enjoy the uh the you know like kind of the, the the darker southern stories you know um you know with novels and stuff like that you know i i really enjoy like my john grisham and stuff like that um but yeah uh, john grisham's great i loved uh reading a time to kill and i love watching the movie uh matthew mcconaughey really shines in that movie yeah, I think it was one of his real first serious roles. You know, that was in the midst of all those rom-coms he was doing. It um, was. Mm-hmm. But it was, it really showed his chops that he would show later in True Detective and, and other stuff. Um, but uh, that genuine Southern flavor has been around since before movies were made. It was in mm-hmm. Southern literature, which was a topic I, I looked at a little bit in my, my MFA thesis paper. Um, but the idea that there's something inherently Southern uh, in storytelling that has been influenced by the people and the place of the South and which can be used. It can be abused, but there's a style we have in dealing with the problem of evil and dealing with sudden twists of fate, ironies, seemingly, you know, insane stuff happening very quickly that you see in Mark Twain, that you see in Flannery O'Connor, that you see in uh, so many Southern authors um, that can be used to speak really deeply to the human experience because it doesn't always make sense. Um, And that's something that I I definitely walked away feeling um, after that tragedy back in 2016 in our previous film, you know, uh, there's the South is kind of a dangerous place. You know, we have alligators, we have some real mean bastards. We have some crazy weather. We have, you know, it's 110 degrees outside sometimes. And uh, I think that wore off on Southern literature and, and films now set in the South. If they're a good adaptation, if they're you know made by a Southerner, if they are genuine to it. I love Tim Burton's um, Big Fish. And I love mm-hmm. the Coen brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And both oh, of those have the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's just crazy shit happening you know every moment 
That's true. Yeah. Over other world that were, that was such a great, great movie is great music, but it's just like the storyline and just, you know, everything that happens is just so, it's so good. It feels like it's made up almost of like, you know, a, um, a series of vignettes almost. Yeah. It's yeah, so exactly. Oh. No, it, it's, it's true. Cause I, you know, I feel like, you know, one thing you, you do see a lot of, you know, in like Southern, you know, like uh, style stories and, and films and stuff is that, you know, there's, you know, kind of that dark undercurrent underneath a, a, an idyllic or normal life, you know? And, uh, you know, I think sometimes that speaks to people obviously, because, you know, sometimes, you know, we don't always see the bad, you know, that's underneath the good. Um, and I feel like that's kind of a little bit of a, uh, um, if I'm not wrong, you know, a, a theme that you kind of visited a little bit in, in August, you know, of, uh, you know, this, uh, this kind of like, you know, uh, anger, you know, mixed with grief that was going on with these characters, uh, you know, that, uh, that August, unfortunately kind of comes, comes into, uh, into the middle of, you know, kind of unbeknownst to himself. Yeah, definitely. That, um, yeah, Southern two-facedness that we're famous for is present there. I mean, you have that dinner scene early on where, you know, they're they're praying, they're kind of being hospitable in a way, um, but there's also this this seething anger because they they see the the other, um, and and film has its limits. It's super interesting in the short story version. The last name Blun is a German name. Um, and that's not really a super big part of the, the film. You only hear the name once uh, in a different scene. But the idea behind some of our casting, August, the German POW, has slightly darker features. He might have been um, a conscript. Maybe not. We don't know. Uh, but they looked like a lot of different people. And there's two sides of that. The two sides that are people don't have to look a certain way to be evil and do the bidding mm -hmm. of the, the Nazi party. But there's also, you don't have to look a certain way um, to be treated right. And, you know, treated like you are a human either. And the blondes were all cast to be, have somewhat lighter features. Uh, mm -hmm. They all have kind of a mix of light and blonde hair, blue eyes, um, because they came from the same place just a couple generations earlier. Maybe they changed their name after the First World War, like a lot of people did. Um, so it's there's some shame in there, uh, which you, you just pointed out. That's, that's dead accurate. Later on in the scene where the kind of really angry patriarch father finally does find out from the son about what his daughter, the school teacher, has been mm -hmm. up to. Um, he is very ashamed and he tells the mother um, basically they have to take action because of their reputation, because um, what will happen when people find out, uh, which is the heart of a lot of toxic nationalism. Um, it's the idea that uh, we have to keep up this, this facade of, of total devotion and and unanimity that's very very true uh-huh because yeah you you do see that a lot with 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 nationalism you know when you when you carry it to its absolute you know nth, nth degree you know uh that yeah it does get very i think toxic is the perfect uh the perfect word word for it um and i think that's that's very interesting because that is something i never thought of you know with the uh with the film of that that basically, you know, they, they are all from the same place generally, you know, just generations removed. I think that's a very, that's something very interesting that I, I didn't, uh, I didn't pick up on my first viewing. Yeah. And there's, there's some other nods to that too, because in the, the schoolroom scene where we film the teacher sister giving the German POWs English lessons, mm -hmm. which was something that really happened. German POWs uh, were given English lessons by local teachers sometimes in the local schools um, they, we have a big American flag on the wall behind her. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was written into the short story. And we took it from the short story to the screen. Uh, it's a super oversized American flag. You don't really notice it. it. It just feels appropriate in the film, but it's, it's massive and it's there. And it was kind of like a propaganda piece mm -hmm. to the soldiers that we were trying to, 
indoctrinate away from within the camps. There were more radical SS elements sometimes, and sometimes POWs were actually uh, assaulted or, or killed by those mm-hmm. more radical elements. So we were trying to de, uh, you know, we would say deprogram, but maybe we were programming them. You know, it's hard to tell which were nobody's objective here. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had that big banner on the wall um, behind her. And there's this nationalistic fervor that we definitely took part in. I mean, the fact that we elected a guy president four times in a row, you know, he only served three terms, but four times in a row during that time period and um the fact that we had suspended so many liberties that mm-hmm. we had incarcerated people based on their race mm-hmm. uh, those of japanese descent um there's a lot of uncomfortable similarities that some of the defense attorneys at nuremberg would would reference and bring up to maybe mm-hmm. wrongly as i i mean i think they were wrong and we were right to convict them at Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were still pointing out stuff that, that stood out. Um, a really crazy tidbit that I just stumbled across during our research for this film is America had a couple, all Jewish camps during world war two. And the reason was uh, like the Japanese internment early on in World War II, we interned a lot of diplomatic families and mm-hmm. um, German travelers who were especially really re- wealthy ones. Uh, and it was somewhat discontinued later on, but we had a few little camps of German um, detainees. And in those camps, we were afraid of the Jewish uh, population of those camps, which was you know, somewhat significant because there's a large number in, among German immigrants mm-hmm. at that time. We were afraid they would get targeted, so we we segregated them out. But the the result is just the mind boggling, you know, statement. Oh, America had camps of Jewish people during World War II. Like that's wow. so crazy to hear. And obviously, the intent was not the same. But um, the effects of of nationalism can be similar in ways that make us uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the main takeaways from the film. Yeah, because it's it's very true, especially in uh, in World War Two. You know, I uh, I remember I watched um, you know because I was a, I was a huge fan. You know, growing up of the the golden age of Hollywood and everything, so I watched you know pretty much everything there was to see. You know, with like you know the thirties, forties, and fifties, and you know, um, and I remember I, uh, I I think it was at like the the 99 cent store, I think I found where it was like this VHS collection of um, Frank Capra's Why We Fight. And, uh, you know, absolutely magnificent, magnificent series of films about like, you know, World War Two, absolutely stone cold propaganda, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, you know, just like, wonderfully made because Frank Capra was a great filmmaker. And, and he, you know, and I remember, you know, just like watching it being like, you were like, oh, my gosh, you know, look at these monstrous, you know, Germans, you know, and, and monstrous Japanese, you know, because it. It, uh, you know, it totally showcases, you know, very much of like what you said of like the other, you know, yes, um, you know, and especially when it was like in the Pacific theater, just, you know, showing the, the, the barbarity, the, you know, nothing positive whatsoever, nothing about normal people. It was just like, oh, look at these monsters out here who we have to go stop. And it was and leaning into mm-hmm. racial stereotypes, like our, the cartoons from that mm-hmm. era from Warner brothers and from Disney are, are mm-hmm. super fun to watch. We had a collection of world war two cartoons. We mm-hmm. would watch from all the different studios, but uh, they, they depict the Japanese in the same way that Disney would depict native Americans huh? and Warner brothers would depict African Americans. And it was, you know, just really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, they felt like they had a, a national duty to, you know, convince people that it, this was life or death, black or white. The problem is, and the, the message of our entire film is nothing is ever completely black or white. Mm-hmm it's very very true yeah very 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 rarely is there is there a situation like that where it's where it's like complete good and evil you know um and even if you may have good and evil 
at the higher levels, you know, um, when you get down, you know, like, um, obviously, like with World War Two, you know, you have oh, the evil Nazi government, you know, the American government was, you know, technically good, I guess you could say, you know, um, you know when, when you compare it to the Nazi <laughs> yeah. government and stuff. Oh, definitely. I have no, no qualms with, mm-hmm. with saying that. <laughs> you know, but, and, you know, like you said, you know, you go down when you, you know, you start going down to like, you know, the foot soldiers, the people here, and it's like, you know, you, you know, you had people stuck in horrible situations, you know, and it just, and it wasn't quite as clear as those propaganda films would, you know, would like to make it, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, your, your film kind of showcases that, you know, when it shows like August, you know, he's, he's a good guy, you know, from what we, well, from what we see in the movie, you know, he's not, you know, he's not like some SS, you know, monster, monstrous character who took part in genocide, you know, um, he's just kind of like an everyday, everyday guy, everyday POW. Um, and that's super interesting that you conclude that because mm-hmm. we, we don't really know anything. <laughs> Exactly. About him at all. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and someone, one of my professors back when we were first mm-hmm. re- reviewing the script before mm-hmm. we shot, you know, he was like, maybe you need to, you know, make him a little bit bad in some ways mm-hmm. so people don't think that you're, you know, saying that there can be a, a good Nazi. And I was like, well, we don't know if he's a Nazi or not. You know, he could have mm-hmm. been conscripted, but... Mm-hmm. But we, we did try to do that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It didn't come across so much, but in the scene where he's at the um at the azalea bush with uh meredith the older Mm -hmm. sister um we tried to show him like being a little bit forward a little bit Mm -hmm. pushy we don't know uh if he is a truly truly romantic you know Mm -hmm. it's a 10 minute film we don't have time to see the development of a relationship that would last a lifetime my wife is convinced he is the real romantic she mm-hmm. she is absolutely in love with the character that she wrote um <laughs> and and for me it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. prisoners shouldn't be uh lynched which is of course mm-hmm. what ends up happening in the, the film so it's um it's an interesting subject uh and and one that I feel like uh, it was easier to approach because I had grown up. I lived four years in Germany. Mm. I toured a lot of the battlefields. Um, I I heard about some of the atrocities that happened on you know both sides in every war. Uh, mm-hmm. There's individuals, like you said, on the lower end. People don't really know why they're fighting, and it gets into black and white very quickly for them. And then you see also see that extrapolated out by their governments. I mean, mm-hmm. we see that today um, with the Internet and with propaganda, how it is today with bots and trolls and stuff. You can have something truly awful happen in a place like Ukraine, where they're clearly the innocent party. They've been invaded. But, you know, a, a soldier might kill someone who they shouldn't, like a prisoner mm-hmm. of war. It happens in every war but all of a sudden it's in high def it's spread around the world it can be used by regimes that have no respect for human rights themselves but are really good at pushing a narrative um and so it gets so muddled it's always so gray and that's just really unfortunate the only antidote is to humanize as many people as possible no, it's, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely true, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think it's as, you know, as, especially with World War Two, as we, you know, had like more stories from families coming out and everything, you know, we, we kind of saw some of that, you know, some of that, that hardship, you know, with certain people of, of, you know, having to, you know, make moral decisions, you know, because, you know, it's, you know, like you said, you know, you, sometimes you might have been conscripted into the Nazi army, you know, and, uh, you know, and you were automatically a member of the Nazi party if you were basically, you know, uh, a mem- you know, if you were a member of society, you know, and then it's like, well, if you were in the army, you know, you, you, you know, might have been faced with certain choices, you know, if you were, you know, sent on certain missions to kill certain people, you know. Um, and even that is a choice. It's not mm-hmm, to remove exactly. the mm-hmm. agency that someone mm-hmm. like August would mm-hmm. have had. Uh, one of my favorite films from the last five years was Terrence, Terrence Malick's um, uh, A Hidden Life. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I had the privilege of watching that at the SCAD Savannah Film Festival, which is our mm-hmm. yearly festival here. It was one of the features they were showcasing there. Um, it's a really great festival here. If you ever get a chance to attend, we've had Ryan Johnson, Malik, some other people come, wow. but um, 
we watched that and I was just weeping at the choice that this nobody made to give up living in one of the most idyllic, beautiful places on earth Mm -hmm. with a family that loved him with a farm that met all his needs with the community, you know, that he had grown up with choosing to throw it all away and say that he couldn't work as a conscript. Uh, He probably wasn't even going to be sent to the front, but he could not support the third Reich. Mm -hmm. And so there is agency in in those choices. Now for him, that was a death sentence. And Mm -hmm. I actually got the privilege of asking a question of the cast at that Mm -hmm. festival screening. So I got to talk to Valerie Pashner, who played the wife of the gentleman uh, in that film, the character in that film. Uh, it was a real person, of course. He was venerated as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, I asked her what made her think, or did she think, that that choice was worth it? That that one individual really had to give up everything in his life uh, at that time. And and if other people had, obviously, you know, it could have ended sooner. But mm-hmm. it w- wasn't it so unfair that that one farmer just ended his life over what was happening around him and and um she's german so her there was a little bit you know it wasn't the best english in her reply but the the gist of her reply was um you don't have to be a a big person to make a difference Mm. and good and evil is something we all deal with every day and i thought it was very interesting that she you know who obviously is probably somewhat privileged she's a famous actress and she was given an award at our festival (laughs) that she uh could see that um it wasn't in vain that this insignificant guy and in the film one of the the nazi officials you know tells him he said you're you are going to be forgotten tomorrow Mm -hmm. um that he he hasn't been forgotten he's Mm -hmm. venerated around the world as a saint and you know the Nazi regime has fallen and stuff, but uh, it's tough. It's tough. Not many people make that decision. That's why we remember him. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the the few, and it's hard to know at the time because at the time that he did that, he didn't even know about the death camps. He didn't know about mm-hmm. any of that. That was completely you know hidden from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much. So. so how do we know in our time and place? what hills are worth dying on it, it mm-hmm. can be a very scary thing once you start to to think about it no yeah because <clears throat> that's very true you know I, I i think of you know i think it was it was relatively recently i want to say in the last five or ten years or so and it was some it was some uh woman who was a uh secretary at one of the death camps uh she was like the, the secretary to you know the commandant or something like that and she was uh um, I believe they were going to put her on, on trial, I believe in Germany. And, um, you know, and her, her defense basically was, like, <coughs> oh, I didn't participate in anything. You know, I, all I did was manage the paperwork, you know, for everything. And, and they, you know, and they basically kind of said, well, they said, you know, yes, you didn't actually kill anybody. You didn't actually do anything like that. But they said, you know, you had full knowledge of what was going on in this camp. You know, you had full knowledge of everything and you chose to be one of the cogs that helped move it along more swiftly. And And that's the really scary part because mm -hmm. there were a lot of cogs Mm -hmm. then and there's a lot of cogs now for a lot mm-hmm. of horrible things. Obviously the things might not be as horrible, but the, our, our willingness to be a cog is <laughs> <laughs> probably somewhat equal. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think that it's very, very true, you know, and, and that, you know, goes back to what you were saying of how, you know, everybody, you know, makes a choice, you know, of, of how involved they're going to be or if they're going to be involved or they justify it or, you know, um, and, and like you said, you know, uh, you know, with humans, it's so easy to, to, to kind of go along with the, uh, with the crowd. There was a, a psychological study that was done, uh, years, years ago. Uh, I remember I studied it in school. Um, and it was like, it was a terrifying psychological study of, where they uh, where they put and this was this was kind of back before there was all of the uh, psychological protections that are put in now with like the ethics boards and everything, but it was in short it was basically they put people in these rooms and they basically said you know 
if you press a button, you know, it's going to cause some pain for someone in the other room. Now, of course, the button wasn't connected to anything, but the people didn't know that. And so they were telling them, basically, they put an authority figure in and said, push the button, you know, um, and the and they tested basically with people, okay, you push the button, this person will feel a prick or something like that. And they got all the way up to basically where they would play a recording of someone screaming in the other room, like something was happening. And people would still keep pressing the button because they felt an authority figure was telling them to do it. And it was it was a terrifying result of like how easy it is for humans to go along with stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always been terrifying. And I, I stumbled across that exact study fairly recently in my research. Uh, the There were two people who refused from the get-go um, and their backgrounds were really interesting. One man was a Presbyterian minister. Interesting. And the other was a woman who, whose mother was a Holocaust survivor. And they, um, from the first level, refused. Other people refused later on, you know. But mm-hmm. from the very beginning, those two were the only two that refused to press the button at the the mildest level. Uh, but it's those are those are those cogs are people without a personal stake. It becomes mm-hmm. more believable that someone like Mister Blunt, the father in our film, would mm-hmm. do something so homicidal when it's there's a personal stake. Mm-hmm. So not only was he afraid of his family's reputation and his daughter's chastity, and, and that's where our film suddenly, you know, is connected to other topics of, of a culture of honor and of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but <coughs> we also portray just for a minute as his son is telling him the news that he's received this telegram and it's you can barely read it it's technically on screen long enough to read it it's not super important uh but the text you know is telling him that his son is missing or or dead and it's from the the war department Uh, my wife actually made the prop herself with her typewriter and like using coffee to to age the paper and stuff um but that was a nod to something from my family uh, side, which was my great uncle died in the Battle of the Bulge. He had landed on Utah Beach and fought his way across the, the continent with his chemical mortar battalion. But uh, on the first night of the Battle of the Bulge, the little town they were in, Sadzo, was overrun by German tanks and uh, he was killed. But um, his picture is who we depict as the older brother, Jesse, which was his name, um, who's off in Europe in our film. And then the dad has been informed of this death um, right before he decides to, you know, take this action. Uh, That was a late addition (coughs) to the script. Um, Originally, we weren't going to inform him. We were just going to show a uh, folded flag under his picture Hmm. in the 10 years later that we start the film out on. Uh, We start the film with Irene visiting for the very first time in 10 years. Uh, one of her parents, the last living parent, has died. She's wearing funeral attire. Her brother is drunk at the kitchen table, and she goes in to, to speak to him for the first time in 10 years. But um, we ended up not using that folded flag at all. And in just a couple days before shooting, we came up with the idea of putting that telegram in there as a final motivation towards homicide because again some people were like well it doesn't make any sense that he would he would kill him which is it's funny because those people were also not from the south necessarily Uh (laughs) (laughs) um and i love ricky smiley our Mm -hmm. actor who plays mr blind because uh he wasn't really acting all that much he he Mm -hmm. plays that character very well uh because he is from just a few dozen miles away Mm -hmm. and uh he knew the type of man that that character would be. Uh, But what made us put that scene in the film with the telegram was after my grandfather read our script, he told me a story that he had never told me before. And the whole process of developing the film and writing the script and stuff, we, you know, are a couple of weeks away from filming this film about POWs. And he's like, Oh, I remember POWs. I saw POWs. And you're like, Grandpa, what, what are you talking about? Like, this is the grandfather that I traveled from Utah Beach to the place in the middle of the 
black forest where my great uncle died with. And I saw him cry there and everything. And he had never told me this story, but he uh, said that, you know, they were, there were agricultural POWs there where he grew up in coastal North Carolina, just like my wife's family was nearby in middle Georgia. Um, but he said after his parents had been notified by the war department that their son was missing. And then a few weeks later that he was killed, um, they, you know, were tobacco farmers and they would still have to bring their donkey cart into the coastal warehouse filled with tobacco for processing. And a lot of those POWs worked in the coastal warehouses, loading ships and, and moving tobacco. And he, grandpa said his father would sit there and, and stare at them. And grandpa was maybe seven, eight years old. Um, and he would watch his, his father just get really irrationally angry at these mm. guys and talk about how lazy they were, how they were laughing and smiling and being treated so well knowing that his son was buried in a box in the cold ground of Europe, you know, an ocean away. And how he said it made him, you know, feel like he wanted to kill somebody. And hearing that just four or five days before we shot our film was incredible. I was like, oh, okay, so this really could have happened. It's a fictitious story, um, but it's a story that now I, I really know could have happened given the right circumstances. You know, if, if his daughter had been involved with a guy like this, like, of course, <laughs> what else would happen here in the South? Um, so it's, it's really interesting to be able to blend different problem subjects, different themes and, and try hope. Not everyone finds it believable. Some people, you know, hate it. Everyone has different reactions to art. Uh, but I, I like what we came up with there. Um, and it's rooted in some other things as well. Uh, my wife's family has some family records about um, some violence and, and a lynching about an alleged rape, you know, from a century or more ago. Wow. Uh, and it was interesting, this one record in the family history, the woman uh, testified that she was she was raped by an African-American man and he had been lynched by the local people there in Emanuel County. Um, but I believe it was a few years later, she ended up dying herself at her, at her husband's hand. She was killed by her husband and it was very interesting. It made us wonder, uh, you know, whether or not that was a rape. Uh, it's just a little line in a ledger book of, you know, the census and the, the family records, um, and who knows if that happened or not. But um, huh. there's little tidbits you can draw from from different parts of history, and especially if it's your own history, uh, to make a story that that feels real to you. Absolutely, yeah. Because when I uh, when I was watching it, I definitely was you know able to feel you know the emotion you know coming through and like kind of the 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 real life aspect of it. Um, and uh, you know it was, and also you know we we talked about a. Uh, um, you know, briefly, you know, like, you know, kind of the, the filmmaking quality, you know, that it was very well made, you know, uh, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, with, with, you know, short films or lower budget films, you know, whatever, you know, you're obviously working with limitations, um, huge limitations. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what were some of the limitations you encountered, uh, making this? Sure. Well, it took us like almost two years total in process and it's supposed to take you three academic quarters, which are all in one year at my school, the way it's supposed to progress. But the way the pandemic had happened, uh, there were rules about shooting. Like you could have no more than 10 people on set, including talent. But we had a cast of like eight or nine, not counting POW extras and, uh, you know, other extras and stuff. So, it was just impossible. <laughs> so we just delayed shooting like quarter after quarter after quarter. My, my professors were like, are you going to graduate sometime soon? The people at the equipment checkout cage, they were like, do you still go here? And I hadn't even shot my thesis yet because I knew I wanted to do this film. Mm -hmm. Once I saw it, once my wife gave it to me, I couldn't just give this up and do something else. Um, so we waited and we waited. <clears throat> and eventually they approved an exemption we filed with them like a special safety plan we'd filed with them proposing 
what exactly we were going to do. We kind of thought they were going to deny it and we were going to shoot it anyway, just not as my thesis. And we were kind of irritated that they approved it right at the last minute because it was even more stringent. And our plan involved daily testing of all cast and crew. That cost us an extra $3,000 just for daily COVID testing. Um, And five, six weeks later, when it entered the next quarter, the spring 2022 quarter, um, all those restrictions were gone. So it was just, you know, money vaporized. Um, But we were safe about it. The pandemic was still happening. And uh, we were just glad to be able to shoot. Um, Because of planning it as not going to be a academic film, um, we didn't end up using any equipment from the school. So I had reached out to contacts in Atlanta and other places and arranged all the equipment rentals so that we could move ahead <coughs> as if it wasn't going to be a school film. <coughs> so that was extra, you know, money and, and time and effort. Uh, but we still wanted to meet the safety requirements of the school in case it could be <laughs> a thesis film. So um we had, you know, an approved armorer on set. We had an intimacy coordinator. We had uh, a stunt person we flew in from Chicago. We had a rattlesnake wrangler with our real rattlesnake who came to set. Like it was, it felt very not student filmy to some people. I, I mean, I thought it felt very much like a student film to me. But um, luckily, many of the people we had on set were people we had met not through school, out of our 30 cast and crew, I think I had four or five classmates there. Um, But most of them were people I had met working on other feature films. Some of them like low budget faith-based feature films, other ones commercials, other ones, you know, other things. So it was an interesting game of uh, just kidnapping people we thought would would work well and and dragging them to the middle of nowhere. Um, And between our previous film, which had shot in the mountains of Tennessee, this one, which shot in February in like the Georgia Plains, and then going out for my documentary on the Oregon coast, uh, a couple of my go-to crew people are starting to joke that I like to to drag them places where they're going to be cold and, and wet and not have cell service. Um, but no, we, we shot in four days, and that was another huge limitation. Um, we had to handpick our interiors and our exteriors because there wasn't one farm where we could have such good interior and exterior shooting so all our exterior most of our exteriors were on one farm and that farm was uh, a gift in a way because we came to came to find out that that farm had hosted pow labor on it in the 40s so that was history (laughs) yeah it was really cool to be able to have our pow extras stand there in a field that had been worked by POWs and to, to roll our, our borrowed Jeep Willis onto that field. And that was another crazy thing because we found that Jeep like two days before we were shooting. We had searched everywhere. I had posted in Facebook group for Jeep, Jeep Willys owners everywhere, like no luck. But my friend was walking through downtown Savannah and he saw one parked in someone's driveway and he just <laughs> called me and he was like, hey, this guy has a World War II Jeep. And we drove over there. We knocked on his door. He knew some people we knew. We signed a contract. We didn't even pay him anything. And he'd let the guy who was bringing our sedan plop it on his trailer and bring it two hours away with people he didn't even know. So <laughs> happy he got his Jeep back. You know, maybe I should have kept it. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of crazy stuff that came together real fast. I was very proud of our AD team and our unit production managers. One of our unit production managers uh, works in LA full time, but they did a good job of scheduling, of providing food and housing. Um, We had a really nice hotel accommodations for our uh, cast, many of whom were flown in from as far away as LA, Chicago, Baltimore. Uh, The guy we flew in from Baltimore, his only scene was cut out of the film. He's not even in the film. He's credited though. He was uh, Rufus, the younger African-American friend of Henry, the, the main character boy. It was his father in the film. His scene was cut. And we felt yeah. bad that some of Rufus's scenes were cut as well. Was with festivals, you know, you want to get it down to 10 minutes. You want it to mm-hmm. be competitive for programmers. Um, 
we thought it was much more punchy without as many side plots going on. You can't really have side plots at all in a short film. And we, we, we come dangerously close to that already. So uh, some of the scenes were cut and that was sad in a way because we didn't want him to be a token African-American character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's not because he's based on a, a real life person with the same name, Rufus Cross, who had provided my wife's family there in Emanuel County with, with food and the ability to survive during the Great Depression. He, he rescued them. Um, so we had designed a whole character based off of them. And the Blunds were in a similar situation. And it was explicit. Um, and then those scenes got cut. And now it's you know just a, a, an homage. But um, he is a character who will be fleshed out much more deeply if we get to do a feature version. But somehow all that came together four days of shooting. We stayed on schedule, 12 hour days, 12 hour turnarounds. We shot our four days. We did one day of special effects pickups a few months later where we, you know, burned our mannequin with diesel fuel and threw our brick through sugar glass and did a couple (laughs) other little, you know, trick shots and things. And then uh, really appreciate, I did a first draft edit, but I had a good friend who's a uh, VFX and film guru He's doing a XR short film that got a lot of um, praise on uh, Indiegogo and, and other places right now. He's he's really great. Porter Justice, um, he came in and sharpened up the cut. We had an amazing sound team, uh, Talitha Ambrush and uh, Andrzej Lazarok, who is... Uh, Polish, I believe, but they did incredible sound work. We had generator noise and other stuff in our sound that they just completely eliminated. Um, but our location sound guy was pretty good too. He's he's gone Union since then. He's worked on Fear the Walking Dead since oh, then. Wow. <laughs> um, great guy, uh, Levi Carter. So super happy with all the post people. Uh, our colorist, uh, Camilo Gutierrez, he was a... Um, he asked me what the inspiration for the color should be. And I, I told him, Oh brother, where art thou? And I came back and everything was yellow. And I was like, what did you do? And he was like, you told me, Oh brother, where art thou? I was like, yeah, I forgot. Oh brother, where art thou? Look that yellow. Um, <laughs> but we, we worked it out. Uh, that's the problem. If you've been taking your time and editing it for like nine months, like I was, is you grow uh, addicted to the, the original, you know, image un ungraded image, corrected, but ungraded image. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had grown on me too much, but everyone loves the color and he did a great job bringing out that, that Southern mood. Um, and then Abigail Western, our composer, uh, she's been delighted uh, with the nomination. She just got in our first little, little festival monthly competition. We'll, we'll find out in a few days if we made the annual festival in LA, but, uh, um, she was great. I, we had requested that she include the Goodnight Irene cover in the end credits. Um, we really like that song because it's a reference to the character. Mm-hmm. Irene, it's in the short story as well. Um, it It's from the South and it is uh, just kind of a bittersweet token of the romance that August and Irene had. Um, and then she used our actress who played Irene to do the vocals in that credits song cover. Um, and that was really exciting. Uh, of course it helped that that song, nobody knows its origins and it's over a hundred years old. So it's well into the public domain, which (laughs) can always help a, a, a a struggling grad student who's, you know, already spent $30,000 on, on his movie so far. So we, we've rolled across that finish line right at the last moment. And um, now we're excited to see how people react to it. It is very exciting, man. And, you know, I, uh, I definitely, you know, I, I wish you all the best when it comes to, uh, to the festivals, you know, um, you know, I thought, I thought it was great. Um, you know, I really enjoyed watching. I've seen a lot of short films, you know, over my time, you know, and a lot of, a lot of feature films and, you know, this, this definitely, I, I, I felt like, you know, the, this was definitely, you know, near the top for short films that I've seen just quality wise. And, you know, the story resonated with me and, you know, and just like, you know, when I was watching it, I felt like, you know, it, it, it was the film, the filmmaking was feature quality, you know, worthy, I thought. Um, 
you know, and uh, I was very, very impressed with it, with that. Um, so I definitely hope, uh, I hope everything goes well with those, with those festivals. I hope you, uh, you bring back uh, a lot of awards. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We definitely would love to come back to Emanuel County and do the feature version of this story. My wife is about 60, 70 pages into that and we're working it, but there's just so much more of this world to show. There's the entire struggle in the camps, the different power dynamics between the guards, the hardcore ideologue SS guys, the normal conscripts and people who just want to get back to their families. Um, there's Rufus's family, you know, this, this black family in a mostly white farming community uh, before desegregation. Um, and the fact that they're, they're mildly successful, uh, the Bluns as a family, you know, how did Mr. Blun get to be the way he is, uh, what made Irene different? Why is she a you know school teacher? Why does she want to go out and see more of the world? How does she ultimately escape and, and how does she escape unscathed? Certainly her father would not have just let her get away with, you know, her transgression of mm -hmm. the expectation there as well. Um, so there's a lot more to tell in a 90 minute version of what we tried to tell in, in 10 minutes. Um, and we'll definitely enjoy coming back to that if given the chance, but, uh, thank you for your, that's super high praise. That's, that's crazy high praise. Uh, We'll see if the festival programmers feel the same way soon enough. Oh, I, I definitely, I, I hope they do. I would love to, to see a feature length uh, version of the story. Like you said, I think there's, there's, there's a lot more to explore in the world. Um, you know, you, like you said, you get teases of the world building, you know, uh, and everything going on. I, I would love to, to be able to, to spend some more time there. Yeah, I'm so excited for the future of historical films in particular. Uh, they used to be paint by numbers, you know, history or, or paint by numbers propaganda. And they were all just kind of boring and stuff. You'd go to the library and have this massive selection of history films that felt like, you know, the ones they showed in school, especially mm -hmm. textbook stuff that wasn't really story. It was mostly history. Uh, but people like Robert Eggers and streaming has really allowed this stylized, you know, super cinematic vision of history to come and, and look under a microscope, under a, a magnifying glass at all these different parts of history. Um, and ours isn't super stylized. Actually, we, we leaned into a 1940s or 50s style of like slow dolly moves and mm -hmm. more, objective framing and stuff like that but uh it's still just super exciting all the different little parts of history that's the where streaming comes in people who are interested in their area people who are interested in these niche topics uh streaming is leaning into exploring niche topics and with doing my documentary and other stuff that that's very exciting too because if enough if a big enough handful of people want to explore a small little corner of Georgia or coastal Oregon, um, then that story can get out there. So I'm super excited for whatever comes next. And I'm really glad that you were able to, to have me here and uh, can't wait to see what comes down the, down the pipe. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for, for taking the time, you know, to, to discuss your film, uh, you know, and just kind of, you know, the way it was made and the history behind it. I think, you know, especially with, with any type of film, whenever there's real life inspiration, you know, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, like families or, you know, just the geographical, you know, uh, histories, it always just, it makes it come alive, I think a lot more. So I appreciate you, uh, you sharing all of that with me. Yeah. It's the truest definition of, of not, based on a true story absolutely not but inspired by it is uh deeply inspired by the place we come from and the families that we we come out of so uh again thank you for having me and and that's all i have oh man uh how are uh, how are people able to to find your work or like um do you uh do you have uh anywhere that you like post your your work or, or um you know on social media or is there um, a way for people to eventually see uh your short film august online or how, how would they go about that 
Yeah, we're currently in the middle of our festival run, so it's not available uh, publicly until that run completes. Um, when that run completes is also hard to predict because if we're lucky, it'll it'll go on for a long time uh-huh. <laughs> uh, into next year, maybe. Um, if not, maybe it'll be available sooner. But uh, they're welcome to you know follow me on on Instagram or Twitter or uh, I'm a old guy who likes LinkedIn sometimes I post there pretty regularly too, but I'll, I'll make sure it's updated. And um, I have a YouTube channel with, with some old stuff on it, but uh, no, we can't wait until August comes out, but uh, hopefully not, not too quickly. <laughs> yeah. Ho- hopefully it has a very, very long and successful run. So this is, this is one of the, one of those situations where, you know, you, you want it to be delayed as long as possible. <laughs> Yes, but uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Sometimes I do TikToks about filmmaking. Uh, it's e- at Eli McGowan at all of those places. E L I M C G O A N M C G O W A N. Oh man! Well, you know, like I said, thank I appreciate you uh, you coming on the program, and you know, uh, anytime you have a, a new project, you know, in the pipeline or anything like that, you know, you're you're always welcome to to come back on and and uh, chat with me about it. It's a dangerous, uh, dangerous offer. We'll, we'll take you up on that. But yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh man, thank you, Eli.